welcome to the fourth episode of our Bite Size Briefing podcast. I'm Adam Rice, one of the Knowledge Council in the Employment Team at Travis Smith. And I'm Claire Skinner, an associate in the team. Our Bite Size Briefings are designed to give you a brief overview of different areas of employment law, whether you're new to HR or you just need a quick refresher. And today we're wrapping up our series on redundancy with a look at individual redundancy consultation. And we're focusing on how you go about your consultation process. So just to recap, individual consultation will be relevant where you're making fewer than 20 people redundant. And it will also be relevant where you're making 20 or more redundancies and you've done a collective process because there's still an obligation to consult individually with those at risk. More on that in episodes one and two of this series. But Claire, where you're looking at individual consultation, how long does the process need to be? Well, there's no minimum or maximum time frame for individual consultation. It depends on the number of employees involved and how complex the issues are. But you can normally complete individual consultation within a week or a couple of weeks, and it shouldn't usually take longer than three or four weeks. Four weeks would be quite a long, complicated individual consultation process. Okay, thanks. What about the number of um, meetings? How many consultation meetings should you normally have? Again, there's no set number, but you usually need around three consultation meetings. So you'd start with an at-risk meeting to tell the employee about your proposals and that their role is at risk. You'd then invite them to a second consultation meeting to let them make representations on the proposals. And you would usually want to allow around 48 hours to give the employee time to prepare for that second consultation meeting. Then you go away and consider the employee's representations before inviting the employee to a third meeting to give the outcome of the process. In practice, you may need more consultation meetings than that, but around three is a good rule of thumb. Okay, makes sense. I guess the critical thing really is to make sure you've covered off all the right issues in your consultation. So in terms of what you need to cover, the starting point is your consultation should cover the redundancy proposal itself, why you're proposing to reduce headcount in the team, or why you think the employee's role is no longer needed. Of course, the employee might have other ideas about how you could save costs or how the team should be structured, and you'd need to consider those as part of the consultation. If you're selecting from a pool, you'll need to consult the employee about who you've decided to put at risk in the pool. And ideally, you would also consult about the selection criteria you're going to use, or you would at least let the employee know what the criteria are going to be. And of course, you need to consult the employee about their scores against those criteria. And Adam, sometimes employees ask to see the scores of their colleagues, but you don't have to provide these, do you? No, you don't. Um, as a general rule, employees are only entitled to see their own scores and perhaps also their ranking compared to their colleagues or what score they would need to get to save their job. Um, the employee essentially needs to be able to challenge their score and argue that they should have scored higher for performance or attendance or whatever it is as part of the consultation. And then the final thing to consult about is alternative employment, because part of your duty as an employer is considering other roles as a way to avoid the redundancy, isn't it? Yeah. As an employer, you have a duty to look for suitable alternative roles for anyone at risk of redundancy. You don't have to create a new role if one doesn't exist, 
but you do have to consider whether there are any vacancies either in your business or across the group as a whole. And this duty continues throughout the consultation period right up until employment ends. So it continues until the end of the employee's notice period. It's a really good idea to ask the employee about the kind of roles they might consider in terms of grade, salary and location, as they may be prepared to take something at a different site or a lower level. Lots of employers will give employees at risk a list of all vacancies across the group, just so they're making sure that nothing is missed. And there are special rules, aren't there, for employees who are made redundant while on maternity leave? Yes, that's right. Any employee who's made redundant whilst on maternity or adoption or shared parental leave is entitled to be offered any suitable alternative vacancy. And they have priority for that vacancy over any other candidate, whether the candidate is internal or external, even if the other candidate is better qualified. So effectively, they have the right of first refusal over the role. And this raises another more general point about what to do with employees who are absent on sick leave or family leave, doesn't it? Yes, good question. Well, um, the key thing here is that you don't leave them out of your consultation. You have to include them, but the way you do that would probably look different. Um, so consulting them over the phone or over Skype or Zoom is perhaps less of an issue in the current climate because that's probably how you're going to be doing your consultation with everybody. But in a non-COVID environment, um, you might think about things like visiting the employee at home if they're comfortable with that, or uh, doing it all over email if that's easier. But if you left them out of the process, that, that would make your process unfair and it could also constitute discrimination. Claire, just coming back to alternative roles for a second, if someone unreasonably refuses an alternative role, they could lose their statutory redundancy pay, couldn't they? Yes, they could. The role offered would have to be suitable for the employee in terms of the level and the skill involved. So, for example, a more junior role is unlikely to be a suitable alternative. It is possible for a more senior role to be a suitable alternative, but only if the employee has the necessary skills and experience to do it. In terms of whether a refusal is reasonable or not, this will depend on the role and the employee's circumstances. So if the new role involves a drop in status or pay, refusal might be reasonable. And refusal might also be reasonable if the role involves extra hours or additional commuting time, say, to a different location, especially if the employee has childcare responsibilities. The employee would be entitled to refuse the role and still take their redundancy pay in that situation. So we've talked about redundancy pay, but is it worth explaining how redundancy pay works and what other payments employees are entitled to? Yeah, sure. So first of all, you've got uh, statutory redundancy pay and employees need to have at least two years service to be entitled to statutory redundancy pay. Um, and as well as the employee's service, you'll need to know the employee's age and their weekly wage to calculate statutory redundancy pay. That's because it's based on um, a week's pay for each year of service up to a maximum of 20 years. Now you get slightly more for each year worked over the age of 40 and that amounts to one and a half times a week's pay and slightly less for each year worked under the age of 22. So you get half a week's pay there. And also a week's pay is capped. So it's currently capped at £538 a week. So if you earn more than that, you'll only get the £538 for each year of service. And it's worth saying, isn't it, that on top of that, employees will be entitled to their notice pay, unless, of course, they've worked their notice. 
and many employers do offer enhanced redundancy pay on top of statutory pay. So it's always worth checking the company's policy on that. And I should also say there is technically an obligation to notify the employee in writing what the statutory redundancy payment is and how that has been calculated. So this is usually covered in the final letter confirming redundancy. Okay, so you've confirmed redundancy. The final question then on process is, do you have to offer an appeal? Well, interestingly, there's technically no obligation on you to offer an appeal against a redundancy, but many employees, employers, of course, do this, and it's certainly good practice. ACAS, for example, advises employers to offer an appeal where there's been a selection exercise, so the employee can challenge their scoring again. Now, whether or not you tell people they have the right to appeal, if an employee challenges the redundancy, it would be best to hear that as an appeal. The alternative would be you may need to treat it as a grievance, which would involve a grievance hearing, plus potentially another appeal hearing against the grievance outcome. So it makes much more sense to treat the challenge as an appeal against the redundancy in the first place, and then you can deal with it in just one single meeting. And the appeal would obviously bring your redundancy process to a close. I think that also brings us to an end in terms of what we wanted to cover in today's podcast, and indeed our redundancy series. So you're now fully up to speed on individual and collective redundancy processes. But of course, if you've got any questions about what we've covered today or in any of the podcasts, please do get in touch and you can find our details on the website. Mm -hmm.